Welcome to the CEC report for the 29th of March 2019. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is CEC Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, housing bust debate. Don't tell the passengers the Titanic is sinking. And secondly, Mueller investigation confirms no Trump-Russia collusion. So firstly, housing bust debate. Don't tell the passengers the Titanic is sinking. Whatever you do. That's the theme. Because if you don't tell them, it might actually stay afloat, apparently. <laughs> well, that's what they hope. And that's the theme of, um, well, that's the theme we've put to a show, a debate that occurred on Monday night on Money Talks on the Your Money channel. Uh, this is a show run by an economist by the name of Peter Switzer. Uh, he had on his show John Adams, the uh, economist and former coalition advisor and economist and um, a journalist for Australian Financial Review, Christopher Joy. So that was very interesting. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But just to set the stage, um, internationally, various experts, media commentators continue to talk about the impact of an Australian housing bubble collapse internationally. So obviously it is considered something of great significance. Uh, a couple of reports. Moody's rating agencies last week had a report that the delinquency rates of bundled up uh, mortgages, which are known as mortgage-backed securities, has increased slightly. So the delinquencies are on the increase. It was a very slight rise so far. Well, it's a, it, first of all, the, the amount of, of delinquencies is 50% is greater than, than, um, you'll, than Christopher Joy acknowledged in the debate. We'll talk about it in a minute. So they're actually, they are, um, people assume they're sort of lower than they are. Australia, it's also unusual, Elisa, because Australia notoriously has very low delinquencies because we have these full recourse mortgages, right? People will go without food to pay their mortgage because if you default on your mortgage in Australia, you don't get out of the debt. Mm. The, the bank can pursue you up, you know, beyond the grave, right? So it's when, when you see these movements in delinquency rates, they are actually quite significant and the, and the issue is the direction that's going up. Yeah, and Moody's cited concerns about the high debt levels in Australia and the conversion of interest-only loans to interest plus principal. Another report this week was this Well, this one. is going to come up in the debate. We'll, do, we'll deal with this issue directly because it's the main jarring claim made in the debate about why there won't be a crash, mm. claim that, which is that the serviceability of mortgages, people, Australians are finding it easy to pay their mortgage. And the real world said these figures that you've just cited show that's not true. Yep. And this is another report this week, again, showing that international perspective from uh, the website Geopolitical Futures. So their warning they put out is, is Australia's real estate bubble about to burst? Do you look at, so we'll put this chart up there, foreign real estate investment in Australia. Look at the stratospheric rise from 2013 to 2016, right? That rise coincided with the massive increase in investor loans in Australia, right? Um, most of which were interest only. So there was a massive effort to push to, to inflate, push this bubble up in that period. And everything has dropped off. Investor loans have, have dropped off. Um, interest only lending has dropped off. And the foreign investment coming into Australia has dropped off. Before we move off the chart, Elisa, let me point out, the dark line is the Chinese component of foreign investment and the other is the rest. 
It's another example of how exaggerated this Chinese thing is. Mm. Right? That's a separate issue, I know, but I just wanted to point it out to people. We always get criticised for, for not falling for the lies about China, like everyone else is getting whipped up about China. China is not the issue for Australia, believe me. There's a lot of hype about it. That chart proves it as well. Mm. And in addition to that, um, our banks are extremely reliant upon uh, foreign investment in all shapes for their capital on their books, you know, That's to remain right. liquid and so forth. And of course, we've seen warnings reported on previous shows uh, that JP Morgan Chase, for instance, has warned people to get out of Australian real estate, which will have an impact on our banks. That's true. That, no, that's exactly right. 40% of our bank's funding comes from overseas. So if the foreign um, capital market, international capital markets are getting nervous about Australia because of things like these residential mortgage-backed security delinquency rates, like you started with, right? They start affecting the ability of, of mortgage-backed securities to be repaid. And it's the foreign capital markets that are buying these things. Before you go on, there was, I just wanted to give the figures for the interest-only um, loans. The, uh, this is APRA's data. In March 2017, there was $32,365,000,000 worth of interest-only lending approved that month. In September 2018, that had dropped to $14.5 billion. From, th from, from nearly $32.5 billion to $14.5 billion. These are, this is money, so another example, the sources of money that's been pushing the market up just isn't there anymore, mm. which is why we had this debate. Yeah, and so on the debate, John Adams made the very important point that Australia has the biggest debt bubble in its 200-year history. Most of that debt is in housing, and when those house prices start to fall, the air comes out of the market and it has an economic impact, construction jobs, etc., and many other things, and that can lead to a banking crash. He cited parallels with Ireland. We'll show a couple of clips from this shortly. Joy, on the other hand, made some pretty wild claims. He said Australia has very little debt. Um, between tw 2008 and 2019, it increased from $60 billion to $600 billion. He didn't say those figures, but no, that's... But he, he just wanted to downplay our government debt. Yeah, that is our actual government but debt. That, that increase would surprise most people. very significant. Um, he said the size of the debt itself doesn't matter, just the serviceability and because interest rates are low, it's all fine. And this is what he said, mortgage repayments as a share of income are actually quite low. You know, totally dismissing the fact that a million people are mortgage stressed. And then he made, you know, a wild... Uh, claim basically that if none of the moving parts move, this machine will keep working, uh, i.e. if the global economy keeps growing at the same rate, if the US and China reach a trade deal, if there's a benign Brexit which doesn't cause a financial crisis, if everything remains the same, we're all good, which there, it ain't going to happen in a million years. Yep. And he ended by saying all bets are off if we go into a global recession. So this was his disclaimer. Then he said we're going to have a big problem. Right? But then, of course, if something intervenes, he said, the government and the Reserve Bank can come to the rescue with even zero or negative interest rates and or quantitative easing, money pumping. And we called that, so the, we put out a press release on this and our subhead was, don't worry, print money. So, and then he said later on that 1.5% interest rates isn't normal anyway and, and he would hope they, they come up. We'll just play two clips uh, quickly, Elisa. You've covered the actual content, but people can see this themselves. The first clip is, is Joy responding to Adams on this question of the serviceability. He starts off by claiming credit for how accurate their forecasting is. And I just want to make this point. This is a guy who started off his career at Goldman Sachs. He was an RBA economist, 
And so when he's claiming credit for their forecasting, what he's actually forecasting is not where the market's going. He's forecasting where the market's going based on the, the, the RBA and government intervention to make sure it goes that way. That's easy forecasting, in other words, right? So he says we're right. The issue is not that he was right in those forecasts. The issue is can those measures that he's, that he's describing there, will they even work now when you've got the debt so big? Anyway, have a quick look at this first clip. Um, if you ignore interest rates and only look at incomes, house prices look about 13% overvalued. Mm. So that could come through a 6% fall in house prices uh, and it co could come through a couple of years worth of wages growth. But I don't think there's any compelling case at all that there's going to be this cataclysmic 40 to 80% drawdown in house prices. And unfortunately for John, he will be proven relentlessly, relentlessly wrong like the other experts. Okay, what, John, this is your, your turn sure, to come back. Sure. Yeah. Well, hang on. So I just want you, Chris, on the record. Do we have a house debt bubble in this country? Do we have a debt bubble or there is no debt bubble? I've, I've argued, I've argued, I'll answer your question. I've argued that the levels of household debt have been um, excessively high. I've argued that consistently. I don't think we necessarily have a debt bubble. What the, well, what well, the, the measure... The the measure reserve bank, wait a second, let me respond to your question. Sorry, let me respond no, to your I question. I just want to make this point. 2007, the RBA on the record, the amount of debt at that point bigger than the 1880s, 1920s. The debt today has never been mate, as mate, big since 1788. Buddy, buddy the homeownership home rate in Australia today is 70%. The homeownership rate, rate in the 1890s was about 30%. No, so no, it's a completely no, different economy. No, but that's so completely different. We are talking about debt and the serviceability of the de that debt. Now, it's serviceable now because because the debt hasn't become a systemic issue. But you show so me. So why will it become a systemic issue if mortgage repayments and share of income are actually quite low? So you, you've got no causal arguments as to why there's a debt okay, sustainability well, Okay, well, let's just see. What we'll do is we'll go back after the break, come out after the break, and you'll tackle the the issue around debt serviceability because that's where he's disagreeing with you. Sure. The debt level's there, but he's saying the ability for us to service the debt is a lot better than you, and we'll kick off on, on that after the break. And on this second clip, have a quick look at this. this. So, so Joy has spent the whole of the debate saying, no, 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 there's nothing to worry about here, there's nothing to worry about here. And uh, it appears Peter Switzer, the, the host, is suddenly thinking, well, um, you know, maybe there's something there. And so he says to Joy, well, well he asked Joy a key question, and, and this is the biggest concession Joy made in the debate. Is John going to be more right if we go into a serious recession? 100%. Okay. So that's going Otherwise, to be, TKO. Yeah, so that's going to be a, a typical uh, reason to, to worry if we head towards yeah, recession. Yeah, 100%. All bets are off. Yeah. If we go into a global recession, yeah, yeah we, we're going to have a big problem. But the, okay. the, but the point is we can pancake independent of the global shock. Hmm. How? How? If credit growth for housing continues to fall and people panic and we see a rise in unemployment in construction, retail and, 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 and in terms of real estate, that can be su sufficient to, to lead to the mortgage default rates. That the can, I, can I say, just well, quick, well, okay, all, all these experts in search of a headline have said that we're going to have this huge credit crunch. Um, year on year credit growth, housing credit growth is actually positive 5%. We haven't had the credit crunch. It's decelerated dramatically. It's at historical low rates. I actually think the banks are going to start loosening credit. Uh, the RBA is encouraging them to do that. I think the banks are going to start dropping mortgage rates. Their funding costs are coming right down. The bank bill swap rate has dropped from 2.1% to 1.8%. Funding costs for the major banks have dropped from uh, about 1.15% 
5% above bank bills to about 0.9% above bank bills. That will be passed on to consumers as they compete against non-banks. The non-banks are, are storming the trenches. And, um, and so I think we'll actually see an improvement in credit. OK, growth. guys, we are out of time. It's a, an exhilarating debate. It's going to be interesting to see who's right. Now, as I've, I've said to you, I prefer him to be right because I don't want your scenario, John. Neither do I. It's a particularly scary one. As Steve King used to say to me on my show, I used to say, I I hope you're wrong. And Steve would often finish off by saying, yes, I hope I'm wrong as well. So let's hope you're wrong. That's a huge concession that he's made, which is basically saying the rest of the discussion was academic in my view, because he's admitted, look, unlike last time, we're not going to survive a global recession. But you see John's clarity there, John Adams' clarity. A, A housing bubble crash here can actually cause our own crash independent of a global recession. And as we said last week, that's capable potentially of triggering a global crash itself. Mm. And John and other people that speak in that manner are constantly warned, don't talk down the market. You know, don't tell the passengers on the Titanic it's sinking. Now, if we want to save ourselves, we have to put that message out and the solution. So we'll come back to talk about it more in just a moment. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're talking about the great housing bust debate. Uh, Now, of course, the entire housing bubble has been built on fraud upon fraud upon fraud. Lending standards themselves were a fraud. Uh, But Deutsche Bank has made a revelation in the last week or so, revealing a major flaw in APRA's data, meaning that they underestimated the mortgage debt bubble by up to 40%. It's average mortgage debt, right? And so when you when you average mortgage debt, you've got to think about this is all mortgages with any that that exist in Australia at the moment. The some of them have five hundred dollars left to pay, right? Some of them have five million dollars on it, right? So the average figure of all that averaged out, APRA has been saying for a while is about two hundred seventy six thousand dollars. And these Deutsche Bank analysts have just looked at this and they noticed that in the last um, decade or so, the, since 2007, the number of, the, the population of Australia has increased by 18%, but the number of mortgages increased by 75%. And, how, and, and they're, they're thinking, how can there be so many mortgages relative to the, you know, in terms of growth, relative to the population? And the, the answer, of course, is a lot of these mortgages are split. One, one, one actual debt, one, borrow, one couple or one house that borrows to buy a home they will often split their mortgage between a fixed rate, a, a, a floating rate, and, and sometimes they split them three ways, right? Mm. And so the average mortgage debt is not the same as the average household debt. And the actual debt for the average mortgage um, or mortgage or is 40% higher. That's, and, and when you're talking about average, 40% is a lot, right? It's reflective of this is a serious thing. So why doesn't APRA know this? We put an article out. We, we, in 2017, we had a former APRA employee um, write an article for, for us saying, look, he can attest that APRA doesn't want to know this data. We know that in the case of Dr. Wilson Sy, the former APRA, another former APRA guy, and I'm talking about a different guy, person now, Dr. Wilson Sy, he tried to um, do proper data analysis for APRA and they weren't interested. And when he left in 2010, they shut down their research department, right? So if we're, talk- we're using this analogy of the Titanic and the debate was like, if we don't tell the passengers of the Titanic sinking, maybe it'll stay afloat, which is the sort of, you know, why they don't want anyone talking down the economy. Well, APRA is like the captain 
doesn't want to have anyone down in the engine room, right, or, or, or mm. below water level who can tell him whether there's a gash in the hull or not. Mm. We don't want to know, right? Yeah. This is, this is crazy, and these people are in charge of our banking system. Now, of course, one of the other provisos Christopher Joy made was that, you know, we'll be fine if there's no international crisis or recession, and, of course, that is not going to happen that it's in progress and everyone's warning of that. You have a global credit bubble and then built upon top of that another bubble where those credit loans are bundled up and sold and packaged and resold. You have the global derivatives bubble over a quadrillion dollars. You have a new European crisis going on, uh, including with what might be the effect of Brexit. Uh, you also have a crisis of the bail-in model, which was the model that was created after the global financial crash to stop having to have banks bailed out. Instead, yeah. they would bail in some of their um, loans and so forth credit and rescue, the bank would be rescued by stealing the investments and savings of depositors. But that is in a crisis point because there are admissions that it won't work. First of all, you had the IMF that has come out and that it said, we've got no tools to deal with this crisis. So in other words, bail-in is not you know, going to work, or at least there's no confidence in it. Uh, you had an article in the Financial Times on the 25th, which warned that banks need to issue, European banks need to issue this year, $450 billion worth of new bail-in debt, the sort of capital they bonds. need. Yeah, yeah, that's the sort of capital they have to have on their balance sheets that can be bailed in in a crisis. But the problem is, investors who would buy those bonds, they're starting to not like the idea that, hang on, if I buy this bond, this could, this could disappear in my hands if that bank gets into trouble. And so that means the issuer has to, the bank, to have to sell these bonds, mm. has to sell them at, a, at higher and higher interest mm. rates. And therefore yeah. the cost of them becomes prohibitive to the bank. And the bank's saying to the regulators, this yeah. ain't working. And therefore the FT said there are concerns that bail-in debt could weigh on profitability and that this process, in fact, threatens to weaken the viability of some lenders. So their so-called solution is coming back on themselves, causing more problems, so it's not going to resolve anything. And finally, I just wanted to get your comment on one final thing, which is the inversion of the yield curve occurring All right, this right was now. a major event that economists know to look for. Most lay people, most lay people don't, but, the, but it defines the market. So last Friday um, in the US, Saturday, 4 o'clock Saturday morning our time, that's how precise the event was, a, 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 um, the, the U.S. Treasury one-year Treasury bond yield, which is the which is how much you make from that bond if you buy it, which is the interest rate plus or minus a discount or premium, that became more expensive than the that became greater than the U.S. ten-year Treasury bond yield. Right now, historically. And in normal circumstances, short-term interest rates are always lower than long-term interest rates. That's, a, that's in a normally functioning economy. When this, when this inverts, and it's those two, those, there's lots of different minor inversions take place, but when it's the one-year and the 10-year invert, um, nine out of 10 times since 1965, it's been the, trick, it's been the, uh, the signal of a recession coming, mm. right? And this was a major event. Mm. That happened on Friday. So, Christopher Joy, better not... Um you know, put any bets on his yeah, predictions, right. I think. Um, now, we'll be right back in a moment to discuss the results of the Mueller investigation in the United States. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back to the CC Report, where we're now discussing Mueller investigation confirms no Trump-Russia collusion. Just before we get into that, don't forget all the backup info is in the Australian Alert Service, our weekly magazine. You can call in if you haven't already for a free copy. Also, don't forget to make a submission to the Senate inquiry into the separation of banks bill. Submissions close on the 12th of April. Um, it's likely the Prime Minister will call an election a few days before that deadline, but that's mm. still the deadline. That won't change. What may change is the reporting date. So make your submission if mm. you haven't yet made it. So that's the Glass-Steagall solution to prevent this banking crisis wiping out everything. We'll put a link on the YouTube video of the, um, where people can get a, uh, a summary and instructions on how to make mm. a submission and a template of sorts. Yep. So now US Special Counselor Robert Mueller has ended his probe into Trump collusion with Russia and has reported that there's no evidence of such collusion during the 2016 US election campaign. Now this was always, as we've reported before, a plot to sabotage US-Russian relations. Which Trump had campaigned on. It was the, mm. it was the best breath. Trump is a strange guy, you know, lots of things you don't disagree, you don't agree with, but breath of fresh air, let's, 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 you know, bring some chance for peace in the world, get America and Russia to get along, please, the two biggest mm. superpowers, and these guys set out to sabotage it. And as we said from early on, uh, the Steele dossier was based on a report by a former British agent, and uh, that was the basis of these allegations. But now that it's been disproved, uh, people are asking for an investigation into who put this all up. Into the hoax. Um, and who colluded to make that happen, along with calls for prosecutions to be made. And Trump himself called it a hoax and called for prosecutions of the, the perpetrators. Uh, earlier he had retweeted this from William Craddock from Disobedient Media, which said Russiagate was designed in part to help the UK counter Russian influence by baiting the United States into taking a hard line against them leaves us all with a more dangerous world as a consequence. Just another episode of the great game. And that's what we were saying all along, exactly that. Yeah, because with what China and Russia are doing, um, you know, there's efforts to make them yeah. the enemy so that we don't go along with a new financial architecture and grand development designs, etc., which would transform the world. Uh, now, journalist Matt Taibbi had a great comment on this too in an article that he wrote. He said it's official. Russiagate is this generation's WMD, meaning weapons of mass destruction. The Iraq war face plant, he said, damaged the reputation of the press. Russiagate just destroyed it. The thing people need to consider when they're looking at this whole story is what might have happened in the last two years if Trump hadn't have had this hanging over his head, right? Because he had come to power saying, I'm going to improve relations with Russia, the two biggest nuclear superpowers that their enmity puts the world in danger. And there's some hotspots like Syria. Syria could have been resolved much more quickly with mm. much less bloodshed if that Trump had been able to pursue that with Russia. Because it wasn't Russia that caused Syria. It was the American CIA, as Tulsi Gabbard, one of the Democratic candidates said, right? They stirred that up. They backed the most extreme murderous jihadis to get in there to overthrow the legitimate government, right? Trump knew that. He, he admitted himself, he, they, but he wasn't allowed to pursue that. Um, they could collaborate on the broader question of international terrorism, right? Collaborate on things like the drug trade. They might, Trump may right now not be getting sucked in by these neocons in his administration into this Venezuela thing. Right now, he is, even though he campaigned against regime change, he is being talked into committing regime change in Venezuela, which would just destroy that country, right? And with, you know, the, um, uh, the behest of people like John Bolton. 
um, if he was, and, and, the, and the Russians have moved, have sent some, some forces there, right, to help support the, the um, Maduro government, and Trump just said in the White House the other day, Russia must get out. And if they were having a better relationship, they could resolve these things more peacefully. That's what was sabotaged. Mm. And let's hope that now that's the monkey off his back, he can go back to his original agenda and actually try and improve something for the sake of the whole world here. Well, yeah, because instead of having a collaboration between major powers like China, Russia and the United States, which could resolve any problem put in front of them, uh, we have the greatest danger of nuclear World War III than we've had for a long time in a Cold War. So... Get involved, contact us, find out more about all these things because we have to be intervening as um, you know, an effective citizenry and pushing our politicians to take action on these matters. So, And make a submission yep. on the separation of banks bill. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Mm -hmm.